0: Hey, welcome to the uh, Top M&A Entrepreneur's Podcast. Uh, my name's Josh Stoddard. I have a guest, is Joel Aikney. Joel is an attorney and helps buy businesses. How you doing, Joel? I'm doing great, thanks. You pronounced my last name perfectly, thanks. for. Uh... Uh, I had a little coaching, so thank you. <laughs> so Joel, the first start is, and how I found you is, you know, I buy a lot of books from Amazon and your book came recommended. I bought it, here's the deal. Uh, pretty awesome. It's from an attorney writing about business books. And I'll tell you, I don't know if you had help writing this, but uh, everything you wish a lawyer would tell you about buying a small business, but that is a perfect headline.
1: Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, we um, I, I wrote it all by myself. I didn't have any help, um, but um, self-published it. And um, it's been awesome. It's been a great resource. And a lot of people have have uh, picked it up and and I've really enjoyed interacting with a lot of people as they've
0: talked to me about it. Yeah. That's cool. So how many of uh, is this your primary business or how, let me just start asking this. How many bu- business buying acquisitions have you been involved with over the year? Career? You know, I, I should keep count, but
1: I, I really don't. I know when I was a young attorney at a large law firm, some attorneys kept what they call deal sheets, where they just kept a list of all the deals they've worked on and I've never done that. I'm, um, you know, I, I've been practicing law for 30 years. I've been in the M&A space for about um, 27 of those years. And um, so, I, I mean, maybe a couple hundred deals. Uh, and, and and I'm talking about being on the buy side and on the sell side. I'm on the sell side quite a bit as well.
0: Yeah. So. And the how, uh, the buy side. I have to ask you about the buy side because I'm a buyer and, maybe, and most of the people yeah. in my group mastermind are on the buy side. So let's kind of talk about that where what is, what's the overall theme you see really important to have? We all know that it's very important to have your deal team six set up. That's an attorney ready to go. Not after you purchase it, but a attorney mm-hmm. that you have a great relationship before you go out there and say, Hey, I got this deal. Let me show you some things. What's yeah, John, the-
1: that's, a, that's a great question. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. All right. Yeah. Um, a lot of people ask me when in the process should I hire a lawyer. When should I get a lawyer involved in my acquisition process? Um, sometimes I have people who engage me uh, right before the closing. They they call me up. All the all the documents have been signed. Can I help them close the deal? Um, other times I have people who engage me at the very beginning of the process when they're just saying to themselves, we'd like to buy a company. We haven't targeted anybody yet. Um, and uh, really, the, what I tell people is hire a lawyer before you sign something uh, and before perhaps you take you know, a risk on. So if you're going to do a letter of intent or a term sheet or something like that, hire a lawyer you know before that. So that they can at least look it over um, before you sign it, and I've got you know horror stories about letters of intent that were signed when they didn't really reflect the deal, or where they said you know they were entirely binding or things like that. Um, a lot of people that I work with don't sign letters of intent or term sheets, um, and so you know really. When we're starting to talk about the, the you know, the, the fine points of the deal and, and we're ready to put pen to paper, um, I think you need to have a lawyer involved.
0: Yeah. L- let me ask you about that deal where they asked you to, you brought you in right before they signed the LOI. Did that deal work out? Because that one always, that would scare me because if if I was, you know, my process is if I look at a deal Uh, I have a really good relationship with the seller and we work out the terms of the deal, every point, you know, verbally, whether it's Zoom or over uh, the Internet, and then transcribe those to the attorney. That would scare me if I like uh, I'm going to work this out by myself and I'm going to send it to an attorney, just sign off of it. I mean, that kind of would scare me a little bit.
1: Well, I think that, um, and I, you know, I, I, my role can vary in that process, but um, you know, I've had people who have signed letters of intent because they downloaded something off the internet or they, you know, I had a a client that I worked with over the course of a couple of years where we uh, had a number of failed acquisitions. So, um, and they just started to take the letter of intent that I drafted for the last deal and use that and draft their own letter of intent for the next deal. Um, you know, fortunately, when they, even though they signed those, that, that letter of intent, uh, a lot of it is non-binding, fortunately. Um, and so when it came time to put the purchase agreement together, I was able to come in and say, okay, you know, I know the letter of intent says this, but that's not really what you guys meant that really doesn't pertain to this particular deal. So, you know, I'm just pointing out to you that when I draft the purchase agreement, I'm going to put in something a little different on these couple of, you know, different deal points. And nobody was upset with that. Um, and so, you know, that that all seemed to work out just
0: fine. Yeah, let me ask you a question about the LOI. Do some companies or buyers just use it as a preemptive strike to lock up the uh, seller? Oh, yeah. So that, you know, hey, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll edit the LOI at a later date because it's non-binding. I just want to lock them up, tie them up.
1: Um, I don't know that I've ever had anybody express that to me in, in that direct of... of uh, well, you of wouldn't say up. it's a
0: buyer, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: but I mean, I'm, I, absolutely. I mean, I just, I'm working on a small uh, acquisition where I'm representing the seller right now. And a seller who's, you know, getting ready to retire, it's a, it's a healthcare practice. And, um, but, but it's being, the potential buyer is a, a corporate health, you know, national corporate healthcare company. And so they have a very kind of systematic process that they use. And certainly their uh, kind of anxiousness to get a letter of intent in place is so that they can lock my guy up because he has had, a number of of potential suitors and so they wanted to make sure that they got him you know on board um, with a letter of intent so they could you know
0: he he'd have to tell everybody else to go away so yeah. i i've seen it yeah absolutely yeah it's, uh, to me that's we i was looking at a it company really profitable it was doing 5 million a year with 2.4 million in ebitda very profitable and a yeah. private equity firm came down normally not in their criteria but they loved the profit so much and the the, the customers that he had that they were willing really, willing to make a deal. Now they sent him a letter of intent. Uh, just like a preemptive strike. And he just wrapped him up. I, I go like I told the owners, like, why do you keep showing this to me? They want you to work 40 hours a week on this business. And you said you want to leave the company to go to another company. What, what <laughs> Why are you you know, using it as a negotiation leverage against me? Anyway, yeah. we went with them anyway, so I don't know what what the deal was when uh, they worked out with them.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. and And that's a, I think you bring up a really good point, too, is that um, you know a lot of sellers might have choice about who their buyer is, and um, and so you know part of the process from a seller's perspective is to try and figure out what the best fit is, you know, who who, who they're going to best fit with uh, when they sell, because it it does make a difference uh, post closing. Um, you know, I've certainly, I mean, I, I uh, back in 2000, I guess, 19, I sold, helped somebody sell a local company here, a pretty good sized company. I mean, I, most of my deals are, I think, what a lot of people would consider micro deals. Um, I like to call them Main Street deals. I mean, you know, this company that I helped sell was in the $2.5 million sales price range with uh, another maybe $2 million in real estate uh, for the building that they owned. Um, but there was a significant post-closing compensation package uh, built in for my, the, the founder of my seller. And within you know three months after closing, it was a disaster, just a complete disaster. And then we spent the next maybe nine
0: months negotiating my, my person out. So yeah how, how, why did they negotiate that that's i mean i i get that you're you're trying to appeal to the desires of the seller to get them signed on to buy the business but if the business can't support that in cash flow how are you going to do that i mean
1: yeah well in, in this situation it was really more of a conflict of personalities and so the cash flow was there to support it but the um the, you know, my my seller uh, felt that the value of the business was much more than the purchase price that the buyer offered. And so the buyer, um, you know, threw in this post-closing, I mean, it was like a five-year post-closing package, which is really lengthy to, in my experience. Um, but, you know, it was a combination of W-2 compensation and 1099 consulting uh, uh, compensation later on. Um, but there was a significant conflict in personalities. And that's really what kind of tore the whole post-closing relationship apart. And then it was just a matter of now my client, I mean, so, you know, again, the buyer was trying to work with the seller to, to, even though they didn't want to pay that particular purchase price, they thought, well, if we can give her some post-closing compensation um, and get something in return, then that makes her feel like she's getting more value uh, for the business, but, um,
0: yeah, it was just price and terms. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what happened there? Why, why did they, she, did she change her mind about what the valuation she thought it was after she sold it?
1: No, not really. I mean, again, it was, you know, the, the, the business was purchased by a, a larger company and, um, you know, she, uh, uh you know, she just felt like, again, a difference in opinion about how the business should be run. Of course, the new buyer wants to come in, wants to you know, integrate the, the new company into their larger system, wants to um, you know, change the way things are done, change the way management is handled, things like that. And she just had, a, again, a, a disagreement with the way that they approached a lot of that. And it just created a lot of uh, tension. And so what we did was we simply, uh negotiated a a settlement of all that post-closing compensation and uh and exited her out of the
0: business yeah she she didn't own the business anymore the bigger company actually right
1: that's correct yeah right
0: yeah that's interesting i got i i the financial that's interesting so where Yeah. Mm yeah um that's funny. Even though she doesn't own the business, I guess, I, I guess you know, if you build started a business from zero and it's your baby, you have some right. emotional ties to it that are difficult to extricate yourself from. That, you know, it could cause problems. Uh, how, how do you predict that in the future? Is that in? Do you write that in the, the uh, representatives and warranties, uh, or like in the event that we don't get along after mm-hmm. two years? how do you get out of that how do you write that, that in contract yeah i i i mean we
1: really don't write it in um frankly i i think that uh i really counsel if i'm representing either side buyer or seller you know i i have when when i was much younger i would try and figure out how to get you know skin that cat but the more deals i've done i really counsel people against that you know once once you've sold your company Or once you've bought a company, get the founder out of there. Don't don't let the founder hang around. I mean, I've had situations where buyers have bought companies and the founder comes in every day, even though they have no employment relationship or consulting relationship, they just are so used to coming in every day that they still come in, they walk behind the counters, they go in the back offices, and it, it just creates a huge amount of tension. And so yeah, but, but you do kind of, in my experience, we've had to walk some tightrope sometimes because, again, we're trying to maybe um, pull some additional cash out of the deal um, from the seller's side. And, and a lot of times people will say, well, that make, it makes sense to maybe set up a post-closing consulting agreement so we can get some services from you and get some cash out to you as well after closing but you know, my, I, I don't like it frankly. And I, I'll tell my clients that, um, and,
0: uh, but right? if you were to get an SBA loan, they said that the uh, previous owner's out. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, yeah. I have a story, a family friend that uh, owned a water company, they sold it and the owner getting up there in age, I think like 85, 90, I mean, he kept coming in the office and very disruptive because once you get a little senile and maybe a little dementia, you mm-hmm. just get angry. And he was just being a jerk to people uh, and until the point where uh, they couldn't figure out how to not get him there until the family actually took away his license to drive to, to work. So, Oh gosh. Wow. yeah, yeah. I, I,
1: that,
0: that's
1: But that's a really interesting story because it really brings in the perspective that, you know, it, we're not just working with numbers and contracts and things like that. We're working with people and, and we have to be sensitive to those, you know, those interpersonal relationships as well and make sure, I mean, I, I, you know, I tell people I can draft just about anything into a contract, but if, if you don't get along or if you've got problems, you know, all my contract is going to do is become the basis for a lawsuit. It's not going to like keep people out of the business and things like that. I mean, you're going to have to
0: work through all that. It's tough. Yeah. I, you know, the more that I think about it, it's really important to have new blood onto it because if you just look, look, we want a 10X your business, but whatever got you to where you're at, it's not going to get you there with you here. So we need to extricate ourselves from that. Right. Right. That's interesting. Hey, so you've got a lot of this business. Where would you focus the most upon when you advising people on, is it due diligence or, or writing the letter of intent or the asset purchase agreement?
1: I'd say my focus is on the asset purchase agreement. I mean, that's, where I bring the most value uh, to the table, I think, um, because I've done it so many times. I've seen so many different flavors of deals. um, And hopefully part of my drafting process are the questions that I ask you about the deal. And um, and, and that way, you know, the answers that you give me will help me figure
0: out what we're going to put in the contract to protect you. So are you prepping the buyer with questions he should ask, or to have the seller provide documents in the upload in the Dropbox or whatever that yeah, vault is.
1: Yeah, again, it's uh, it's probably a little of both. I mean, you know, I am, uh, you know, I, based on you know, depending on the industry that the the business is in, um, I'll be aware. Like, for example, over the last maybe a year and a half or so, I've helped people either buy or sell. Uh, some online businesses, and, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that there's a lot kind of under the covers uh, on, an on, you know, uh, a lot of intellectual property issues under the covers uh, for an online business, and so, you know, I'll, I'll ask about that. I, I remember we did a deal last year where I was representing the buyer, and the, um, you know, I kept saying to the buyer, okay, you're buying this online business, but um, do they have any registered trademarks? No, they don't have any registered trademarks. Well, I get on the US Patent and Trademark Office's website, do a quick search, find out there are three registered trademarks. So we just need to make sure that we understand what all the assets are. I mean, they, had, they thought there was just one domain name. There were really several domain names. There was not just a, uh, an English version website. There was also a Spanish language version website. So, by asking the questions, I was able to make sure we understood, you know, we were able to put in the contract and make sure we were getting all the assets that we needed to, to run that business. Uh, if we had just gone with the first draft of the asset purchase agreement, none of that stuff was referred
0: to at all. And so, is it, was the buyer neglected to mention that, that they have a Spanish language translation or did they? are you supposed to ask? Or I know it's a, it's a, you know, it's important for both parties to be honest and transparent and full disclosure, but.
1: No, I think honestly, I I think that the seller was aware of most of the stuff like the Spanish language website, but the seller's lawyer uh, wasn't, wasn't aware of it. And so it was only because I was representing the buyer. It was only through my questions and my, you know, my uh, kind of research and that I was able to identify uh, intellectual property assets that were pretty easily identifiable. Um, but I just had to make sure I asked the right questions. My 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 buyer wasn't really aware of, of those things, didn't even know the right questions to ask. Yeah.
0: So what do you see? I mean, that is a uh, big business now is buying e-commerce online businesses. I mean, what are you seeing as a consistent uh, trend of people like that you have to uncover. It's like a unpeeling onions, right? To to find something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, and and like you said, you know, some of that takes place, or hopefully would take place in the due diligence um, process. A lot of times, my clients don't really involve me as much in the due diligence process, um, partly because I think they're just trying to save on legal fees. Um, and, and a lot of times because, you know, they feel like they've got the right questions to ask. So, and that's okay. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's a, a, a terrible issue to deal with. Um, but again, by the time we get to the, the asset purchase drafting phase, asset purchase agreement drafting phase, whether I'm drafting or whether the lawyer on the other side is drafting, um, you know, there, there are certain questions that I'm gonna ask my client, like, you know, things to make sure that they're getting the assets that they think they're getting, that they're paying the price that they think they're paying or getting the pr- the price that they think they're getting, that it's being paid the way they think it's supposed to be paid. I'm, I'm just, and that they're getting the kind of promises, the reps and warranties that they think that they're you know, either going to get or give depending on what side they're on. So, you know, again, a lot of my role in a deal is um, not just necessarily as a lawyer, but as a I mean, it says on my law license that I'm an attorney and counselor at law. So I spend a lot of time coaching or counseling uh, my client through the process as well to make sure that they're protected.
0: Yeah. Uh, You know, we, uh, my mastermind group, what we look at is uh, before you get the asset purchase agreement is make sure that the, there's a kind of a pre-conceptual agreement that you do face-to-face and or zoom call that all the points are there and then they move to LOI and that's just you know that is drafting exactly what we talked about is this what we talked about it's like it's a yes or no and then they move that to the asset purchase agreement if somebody says oh okay let's buy it but what happens if it just what do you do to hold back what are the points in there you to hold back if it's not represented in the warranties reps and warranties parts of it what do you protect the buyer from or, or give them? Like, I know you could put some in an escrow or you just call the deal off. What's the, what are some other ideas?
1: Um, well, I mean, I, again, um, if I'm representing the buyer, I want the seller to make as many reps and warranties about the business as I can squeeze out of them. Frankly. Every part you know, of the business.
0: Of- I mean,
1: I mean, that's, that's my ideal, right? My, on one end of the spectrum, I want, you know, I want 10 pages of reps and warranties about every aspect
0: of the business. Inventory, Um, cash flow, balance sheet, financials. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I want it all. I want it all. And, but you know, the, the seller, from the seller's perspective, a lot of sellers are like, Hey, this is an as is deal. Right. So they're, they're all the way at the other end of the spectrum. And, um, you know, and there are a lot of factors that come into play. Purchase price, you know, I, I just helped the client buy a fairly significant um, high profile business that we just closed on last week. Um, and, um, you know, the purchase price was was essentially the, the price of, a, of an expense, you know, of a luxury car not even an expensive, you know, a high-end Mercedes or something. So the purchase price is really low. My client is getting a, a, a real kind of vibrant business. And um, and so when the seller said, hey, this is as is, we said, okay, fine. We'll take the risk. You know, we'll take that risk. So, you know, the only reps we want are that there are no liens on the assets. And once you tell us that, we'll, we'll do the whole thing as is.
0: And if there are liens on the assets and you discover it through investigation that, what do you say? You hold back in what, in escrow or what?
1: No, I mean, if, if I find that there are liens on assets before we close, then, you know, I'm just going to tell the seller right up front, we found these liens. And when we disperse the purchase pr- price proceeds, we're going to disperse x to pay off the liens and will and the balance will come to you that's it we're not you're not we're not going to let them hold the money
0: is it in, like a deduction in the purchase price also or optional yeah
1: well i mean i guess you could look at it that way almost it's not really a deduction in the purchase price but you know in, in that kind of a situation i would put together a simple uh some you know they call it all different things a settlement statement or a closing dis- disclosure um, that, that shows where the flow of money is going to go. And I have the, the seller sign off on that at closing so that they know, even though the purchase price is $5 million, we're going to take 250,000 of that right at closing and, and give it to the bank to,
0: to get rid of the lien and they'll get the rest kind of thing. Well, if you see a business that's an online business, it's just like purely cash flow online and they got real estate. Do you separate that? I, I've never bought a business... With real estate, it's all yeah. online. I mean, I don't know a lot about that. So,
1: yeah, I mean, uh, that's a really good question because typically, even whether it's an online business or not, um, those are two separate deals. So you're going to have an asset deal, and then you're going to, if you're going to be involved in the real estate, you would have a separate um, uh, real estate deal. So. Yeah. You know, like like you. I mean, even this last year, I helped somebody buy an online business and uh, but the seller had leased space. They didn't own it, but they had leased space. And we just said, hey, we're not taking the lease. You know, we're not we don't want any of that. You're going to have to figure out what to do with that yourself. And so we just bought the assets out of the business and they had to handle the real estate later. We don't you know, we don't even know what happened.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you about your experience with like an asset sale versus a stock sale. Have you ever worked with an OTC company or a public company? You know, uh, no. I mean, well, when I was, I
1: spent the first um, 12 years of my career at some very large law firms. Yeah, And so some of the clients that I, you know, represented, they were institutional clients of the law firm. Uh, They were Fortune 100 100 companies. They were public companies. So So, yes, in a, in a kind of an indirect way, but not since I've been out and have my own. Price.
0: And you recommend an asset sale for most of the stuff, right? So that you're separating the liabilities. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I'm if I'm on again, if I'm on the buyer side, um, I'm I'm definitely pushing hard for an asset deal to, to just leave the liabilities with the with the seller. Um, interestingly, I'm in the Virginia Beach, Norfolk, Hampton Roads area. Our primary, one of our primary industries here, is the
0: military. Oh yeah, um, big DOD stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I've I've represented um, companies, consultants, you know, defense contractors who have sold their businesses. There are certain situations where you got to do a stock deal. Like if I'm selling a company or if I'm buying a company. That is you know, their primary assets are contracts that they have with the government.
0: Well, yeah, those and also contracts. I, let me ask you about that. I want to sorry to interrupt you, but uh yeah. that's when it comes into play, is why you'd buy a stock sales because if you have a DOD contract or a government or a university contract, they're long-term contracts. Right? But not only that,
1: but they have they have terms in those contracts that say that they're non-transferable, that they're non-assignable. So if you if you try and sell the contract itself as an asset, then it's going to it's going to be
0: terminated. So it has no value. So you have um, to buy it as a stock and not an asset. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, we try our best when we're doing a stock deal like that to still have some robust indemnification provisions in there. Um, and to make it, you know, try and delineate between pre-closing liabilities and post-closing liabilities and who's responsible for what. Um, but, you know, I think I say it in my book that an indemnification is only as good as the financial strength of the seller, right? If the seller doesn't have any cash after the deal's over and you try and make an indemnification claim against them, well, it's like trying to squeeze blood out of a stone. You know, you, yeah. have, the, you have the contractual right to do it, but they may not be able to, you know, they may be judgment proof. And
0: so you're not going to get anything. Does does the, I'm just curious on this. I've never, haven't seen it. Like do you have to, as the buyer and the seller, does the seller have to notify the government that you're going to sell the company and they have, can they have up or down veto vote on a sale to a new owner
1: yeah, I mean, I've seen. Yeah, I, I think the short answer is uh, typically yes. You've got to let the the if if there's going to be a change in control. So in other words, if the if the buyer's buying 51% or more of the company, um, I mean, I would as part of the due diligence, I would look at the con- the government contracts. But I think generally speaking, you're going to have to notify the government, and they're going to whether they have up or down. I think they're going to want to vet the um, the buyer they're gonna to want to see their financials they're gonna to want to know who they are and how they're gonna fulfill the contract but yeah I've only done, you know, I haven't up. done a, I haven't done a lot of those deals but I've done enough to know that that it's a different animal.
0: Yeah would that have to be in the uh uh asset purchase agreement that whole clause there
1: well yeah in the stock purchase agreement we would want there to be a, a contingency section that says you know that the deal the closing is going to be contingent on us getting whatever approvals we need including you know if there's government approval required we're we're going to want that make that a contingency to the to the purchase
0: yeah the reason i'm bringing that subject up uh, i'm i'm a veteran and i know a lot of vet- there's a lot of veterans in my mastermind group so they go after these companies that have oh, yeah. contracts yeah. yeah yeah interesting yeah
1: around here we we end up having i mean I, I don't know you know i've represented a handful of companies that are run by former uh, special forces um, uh operators and you know they they do a lot of consulting work, a lot of training work uh, with the Department of Defense. and so they have you know lucrative contracts but um, but like I said, they can't really you know if they want to exit their business or or a lot of times what I see is a smaller group, a smaller company being acquired by a larger company, um, you know we we just have to make sure we do it the right way so
0: we don't hurt those contracts. Yeah. Do you ever work with companies uh, where there's a lot of seller financing? And I'm just oh, yeah. curious about the problems that arise from seller financing. I mean, like sellers don't want to be in the loan business, but it's sometimes essential to the, get the deal done that the seller takes financing. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I would say probably 60 to 70% of the
0: deals I do have some sort of seller financing involved in them. And um What's the like characteristics of that where you want to make sure the seller understands really clear, like, if buyer takes over the business and can no longer pay the seller financing, what happens? Right, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you want to make, I mean, it's not the best position to be in. But like you said, sometimes it's the only way to get the deal across the
0: finish line. Um and but that's usually that, in, that debt's not in first position. It's usually in second position to like an SBA or financing deal. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. And especially if you've got the SBA involved, I'm doing the deal right now where I'm representing the buyer who's going to finance most of the purchase price with an SBA loan, but there is some seller financing as well. And the SBA typically requires that this seller not only take a second position, but also take what they call a standby position where they the seller can't be paid under their promissory note uh, until the SBA has been paid off. So if it's a five-year term on the SBA loan, typically the, the SBA is going to have the seller sign a standby agreement that says, I won't collect any money for five years or until the SBA loan is paid off, and then I'll start getting paid after that. So so yeah, I mean, I, I have, I mean, you know, you, you run into situations where you might have a seller who's 75 years old. And if, if he or she's got to stand behind in a second position and also stand by on an SBA loan, they may not, you know, they may be 80 years old before they start getting paid
0: under the, the, it's just like, the no, 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 I want the money now. Cause I might, exactly. not be, I might be room temperature tomorrow. So,
1: well, and, and even frankly, in one situation, I can recall, you know, the seller, I represented the seller and he was very, and it was, almost those exact ages and stuff. And I said, well, you know, you're either going to have to go out, you know, just terminate this deal and go out and find another buyer or close this deal and just accept the fact that you may never see that money.
0: Ah, uh, Was that a hard pill to swallow there? Yeah, it was, but he wanted out. So he swallowed yeah. it. I got a question for you about that. You know, the the baby boomers are aging group and there's $12 trillion worth of businesses, whatever that number is. Are are you seeing more and more of that? The, you know, these people that have started this business run it for 20, 30 years trying to get out. Is that what you're seeing a lot more of?
1: Um, Not really. I mean, frankly, and I don't know why it's not that, but I mean, I I see uh, baby boomers who want to get out of their businesses, but don't know who to sell them to. They can't find a buyer. I think that's a bigger issue than, you know, am I seeing a, a high volume of those kinds of deals? What I'm really seeing is a higher volume of people who are at the end of their careers. They want to exit, but they can't find a buyer to buy the business.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's, that's actually a problem. Cause you look at a lot of these businesses, you know, like 5 million, $15 million businesses. There's only one buyer eligible, like that it's interested in doing that business because they might be in Ohio and you know, it's a manufacturing business, it's unsexy. You're working with blue collar, whatever it is, right? It's made the owner wealthy, you know, in a high income, but nobody's it's not marketable to somebody that's like, I can buy an e commerce business, there's 40 out there, and uh, you know, I'll get this X multiple on it, right? Right,
1: yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, it, it's uh, a lot of the, the the baby boomer businesses are they have the personality of the founder of the owner
0: yeah and
1: and they put so much sweat i mean my you know I have that a family experience where my father built a small business and and put a lot of sweat equity into it and and it was you know it's not a, a big business but um but we tried to find we had a couple of employees who we you know thought were gonna purchase the business and they ended up deciding not to and so my dad just you know shut the the doors one day and that was the end of it
0: just just shut it down and how much was that doing what kind of numbers Uh, i'd
1: say in its heyday probably you know again not big but maybe um you know maybe two to three million a year and there's
0: a lot of people i know that if they were just new about this hey man you could step into a business right now and doing two to three million dollars right and here's all the process the guy built it up because it costs twice as much and there's twice as much energy and emotional, you know, ups and downs of starting a business than buying a two to three million dollar business.
1: Right, right, right. Well, and you, your follow up question should be, Joel, why didn't you take over your dad's business? But um, it just... Joel's an attorney.
0: Maybe he doesn't want
1: to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, w- I wasn't at the time. Well, I was when he when he shut it down. I, I worked for him, you know, all through anytime there was a, you know, vacation or, Uh, summers or things like that, off and on, I would work for him, and I worked for him after I graduated from college, but um, it was, you know, I just didn't have the same skill set that my father had, and so I realized I should go, I like, you know, I like doing deals, but I should go to law school and and maybe try that, And, and I've been I've been okay at
0: that. So. I, I'll tell you a perfect story. It's a guy I went to high school with. This is a long time ago. His dad owned the packing plant in Wilcox, Arizona, a really small town. And he goes, man, I yeah. am not killing cows every day. I'm not taking over the business. Like, it's just nasty. It stinks. It's bloody, blah, blah, blah. And perfect example of that right there. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, well, that's My great. Day. I mean, I've yeah. taken a lot of your time and I really appreciate that. Uh, Joel, Aikney. Got a book. Here's the deal on Amazon. Get it. Let him know. He's on uh, LinkedIn. So thank you so much, Joel, for taking time today. Yeah, John. Thanks for having me as a guest. I really appreciated it. All right. Take care. Okay. Talk to you soon. I'm uh.